Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This, uh, not that this matters to anyone, this is message number 44 in our series uh, in the book of Acts. We have five left to go, so we're almost there. You've almost made it. Be patient. Just a little bit longer, we're going to get there. Here we are once again in God's Word, in the book of Acts, and as we've seen before, we have a passage before us that at first glance you might look at and you might say, I'm not sure this has much relevance to life here in 2023. And once again, we'd be completely wrong because what we're about to see is that events that took place nearly two millennia ago have application for us that is powerfully relevant, even vital, vital for life here in Q4 of 2023. Here we go. Uh, there are times in life where you have before you a fork, fork in the road, right? Things have been pretty straightforward up to a point. You've been running the playbook. You've been doing your thing, going through the motions, expecting, maybe not expecting really anything out of the ordinary to, to take place. And yet there it is. A decision lies before you. Are you going to go this way? You're going to go that way. Opportunity is knocking what are you going to do? Are you going to seize it? Are you going to reject it? Or are you going to put it on a back burner? We'll decide on this just another day, like I do often with the mail that comes in. <laughs> but we need to be careful, right? We, we need to be very careful because, as is so often the case, when opportunity knocks, that knocking doesn't last forever, does it? doesn't last forever. There is an old Arabian proverb, I'm told, and it goes like this. Four things come not back. The spoken word, the, the arrow that is spent, time passed, and the neglected opportunity. Here in Acts 24, we see three opportunities that were put before different people. And what we're going to see is that the motives within them, within these different players, they have a lot to do. They have a huge impact on how these people meet those opportunities. And what we're also going to see is that neglecting some opportunities, well, that could be the worst thing you could possibly ever do in life. Of course, we've been following the life of Paul. We've been following Paul from Jerusalem. Now he's in Caesarea, that port side town, and he is awaiting a hearing from the governor uh, as to whether or not he is to be convicted of any crime or not. We're at Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Uh, in, in normal cases, we would all stand together and we'd read through God's word together, but as we work through narrative together, uh, I find it better that we just work through one verse at a time here. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Verse 1 says this, after five days, the high priest Ananias, he came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. This is, this is a rather big deal. I mean, to, to rally 
to find a lawyer to gather up all these men and go on this journey, 50 miles or so, to the coast, it reveals something about this high priest Ananias. It reveals to us that dealing with this Paul situation was a very high priority. In fact, top priority for him. He wanted this done. In fact, he not only wanted it done, he wanted Paul done. He wanted him out of the picture completely. And it says this at the end of verse 1. It says, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, we're all familiar with courtroom drama, right? At least the TV version of courtroom drama. There's a judge. There's a defendant. There's usually a prosecution. Well, there's got to be prosecution, right? And we've got those players here in place in Acts chapter 24. Verse 2 says this. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, that is, accuse Paul, saying, since through you, he's speaking to the governor, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms have been made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Have you ever heard of a kiss up? That's this guy. It's exactly what's going on here. Now, it's customary to greet the judge with some form of pleasantry, but this goes far beyond that, doesn't it? This is downright flattery. And what's more, this is flattery that is fundamentally false. Governor Felix, no friend of theirs. In fact, this is not a nice guy. He's a former slave. He rose to power because his brother was best friends with the emperor, and He was known for his brutal and barbarous rule. The way he responded to several insurrections that had taken place, well, that horrified the Jews. They didn't like him. They feared him. They hated him. But guess what? Here in 24, they need him. They need him to get what they wanted. So the high priest and the elders, they have their lawyer butter this guy up before presenting their case. He ends by saying, but to detain detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, here we go. He's about to lay before this governor judge three accusations against Paul. See if you can catch him here with me. Number one is, he says, we've found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout The world. Wow, this is pretty impressive stuff. Around the world, you say, really? Okay, this this guy Paul, he really gets around. What has he done? Well, he's a plague. He's a troublemaker. He's out there. He's causing all these riots. You know, all these riots that are popping up all over the place. He's causing those. And that's something that they hoped would really get this governor's attention because unrest is something that this governor was responsible for putting down. He hated unrest. When the Egyptian prophet, we've talked about him the last few weeks, that Egyptian prophet, he rose up, tried to lay siege to Jerusalem, claimed that he could make the walls fall down. All his troops were going to come in and raid the place. Well, the governor stepped to that very, very quick. When Jewish nationalists, they stirred up this anti-Roman movements from time to time, well, it was the same sort of deal. Maybe this accusation will be the very one that gets rid of Paul. We'll see, but we have more. Secondly, they say, Paul, 
He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, of course, Jesus was from Nazareth. And apparently anyone who followed him, at least for a period of time, was referred to by others as Nazarenes. By the best I can tell, they didn't refer to themselves that way. They, they called themselves the way. We're followers of, of the way, the way, the way, the truth, and the life. But here they say, this is a sect. It's a sect. Paul is the ringleader of this group of people. And this is not classic Judaism here. It's an offshoot. It's a departure from, from what we teach and what we believe. And so by saying this, what they're doing is they're letting the governor know that this guy, Paul, this guy over here, not one of us. Don't think when you look at him, even though he's, he's not, he's, we're not connected with this guy. Instead, he's a guy who's leading a perversion of our belief, and considering that they just claimed that he was stirring up riots all over the world, well, it seems that their implication is that this movement of which he's the ringleader, well, they're a real threat. They're a real threat to us as Jews. They could be a threat to you. Number three, they say, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Of course, the truth was they didn't exactly seize him, did they? They tried to tear him limb from limb. And if it wasn't for that Roman commander stepping in, well, they would have killed him right then and there. Had Paul really been guilty of desecrating the temple? Well, we know that's a total fabrication. And we'll see in a moment, Paul responds and makes it clear that he actually was doing the exact opposite. Now, best we can tell, Luke, as he is presenting this to us here, he's, he's presenting a summary of what was all presented here. But it seems clear that this lawyer doesn't really have anything to offer up to this judge other than accusation. Just, just claims here. No, no evidence. What's more, the only accusation that the governor would really even care about would be, number one, I don't, I don't really care whether or not they profane, he profaned your temple, okay, big deal. He's in charge of us, okay, the sect, okay, whatever. But he's causing unrest, okay, that might matter. And so it seems like they're really just kind of grasping at straws here. And I would think that anyone who had presided, who's presided over a case, to them this would be pretty obvious that this is weak at best. In verse 8, the prosecution lands. They land by saying, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Basically, we don't have any evidence here. We got all these accusations here, but we don't have any evidence. But if you just talk with him, well, he's just going to incriminate himself. You'll find out that he is guilty as we say he is. And verse, verse 9 says, well, the Jews that were there, they all respond by going, here, here, yes, so that's exactly right. Uh, maybe they're grunting. I don't know what they're doing. But it's true. What's behind these religious leaders? We asked this question last week. They, why do they hate this guy, Paul, so much? Well, we pointed out last week that, for one, they're, they're blind to the truth. They, they, they don't see the truth of what Paul is, has been preaching here. Secondly, they have the spirit of lawlessness ruling inside of them. They feel quite righteous, quite quite squeaky clean, quite uh, self-important and good on their own 
Righteous in their own eyes, but inside, something's going on. Their, their hearts are dark. And they're willing to make compromises, right? They're, we'll compromise what's right and true and good as long as we can get what we want. That seems pretty clear here. Remember Paul blurted it out to the high priest a couple weeks ago? He said, you whitewashed wall? Well, that's what's going on here. The clothes that they wore. And the place where they worked and the, the rituals that they kept and, and the, the, the holy scriptures that they, they were protecting and, and held and proclaimed. Well, that all proclaimed they're holy men. These are good guys. And yet inside their hearts, there's some darkness going on there. And it's found in their motivations, isn't it? And what are they motivated by? Well, they're motivated by power. They're motivated by pride. They're motivated even, even by greed. You might remember, we noted last week, the historian Josephus, he said of this high priest Ananias, this guy was really corrupt. He would even steal the offerings from his other priests. Doesn't sound very good. But in their mind, they were good. They had a good thing going, too. And they were not going to let anyone get in the way of that, especially some turncoat Pharisee who was basically saying that for all of our efforts here, all these wonderful things that we do, and look how righteous and holy we look, we're not made right with God by all of that? What, what we still need to trust in this Jesus character? Are you kidding me? Paul cr- proclaimed that salvation came by faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone, didn't he? And they didn't like that. So when they stood before, when Paul stood before them on the steps of Fort Antonia, just beside uh, the, the Temple Mount there, about a week or so before, he's calling them, remember? He's calling them, believe in Jesus and your sin can be washed away just like mine. When they were given that opportunity, what did the motivation of their hearts move them to do? reject it. And their hearts are filled with rage and they succumb to their thirst for blood. Now here they are. And they're pleading with this Roman governor. Much like they or or the same people that were in their positions not too long before had pleaded with the Romans take Jesus' life. Interesting, isn't it? That's the prosecution. Now it's Paul's turn to speak. Of course, he's expected to respond to these accusations that have been made against him. But could it be that there's another opportunity that he sees here? Look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. There's a difference there immediately, right? A difference between the way Tertullus introduced himself and the way Paul's introducing himself. Paul, of course, is going to be polite. He's going to be respectful. But he's not going to be flirtatious, is he? He goes on in verse 11. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone. Or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
You can, you can verify this, he says. You can verify. It, it's, it hasn't been more than 12 days. 12 days. How could that possibly have been enough time for me to stir up all of this riotous uh, stuff that they claim is going on? Verse 13, he points out, they can't prove any of these accusations. Where's the proof? It's not here. So he shows them that these, these charges, there's, there's no teeth. To this, and then he moves on to charge number two. They say he's leading a dangerous sect. And then he begins by saying, but I confess to you. And I wonder if people in the crowd were going, oh, get ready. You see it? Here it is. He's going to confess. He's going to confess. He's going to tell them. He's going to admit to all these things that, that, that we're saying. He's going to admit he's really, he really is a leader of this sect. He really is a cult leader. Paul continues. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, notice he doesn't call them the Nazarenes, like they said, according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. In other words, I'm fully on board with, with my accusers here. We're actually on the same team. We're holding on to the same scriptures. Paul never walked away from his Jewish, Jewish faith, did he? No, he just had his eyes open to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies that their forefathers had been looking to. And guess what? These accusers did not want to hear that. <laughs> Here they were accusing him of being the ringleader of, 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 of a group that was stirring up all kinds of trouble. No, they didn't want to be connected with that at all. At all. What's more, Paul was once again dividing them. Some of them believed in the resurrection. Yes, some of them very much did not. And that would have stirred up something in them as well. And Paul's saying... I believe the same stuff here. We're, we're, we're the same. But there is a difference. There's a difference between Paul and these priests and these elders who were pointing fingers. This Jesus that he was believing in, well, he was leading Paul to live in a way that was fundamentally different from the way these men were behaving. Well, they were being consumed with, with, with hatred, with pride, with flattery, devious schemes, with greed. Paul writes, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. You see, you see the difference here? His faith is producing in him something that's so different from them. Uh, he was able to say without flinching, without hesitation, my conscience is is clear. I, I want to have, that's, that's my, one of my main desires here. And I wonder if some of them were thinking, gee, I don't know if my conscience is clear. I wonder if the governor was there going, I don't think I could say that. And everyone in that room knew what that governor was guilty of. They knew, yeah, yeah, not this guy. His conscience isn't clear. Oh, wait, me too. See what's going on? Here's a question for you. What's your faith 
producing in you, in me? What heart motivations are developing inside of you? And how are they leading you to behave and talk and even think? What you believe matters, doesn't it? It really does. Jesus said this, speaking of people who are not what they seem, he said, you'll recognize them by their fruits. It's the idea that a person's actions tell you a lot about what's going on inside of them, right? I'm not a poker player, but I hear there's this thing called a tell. It's these things that people around the table will do as they're holding their cards and they'll, they'll scratch or they'll, they'll twitch or what. I don't know. They'll do something that tells the other players something about the cards that are in that player's hand. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You'll know them by the fruit that comes out of their lives. And he goes on to say, a good tree bears good fruit. The ones that don't, well, they're cut down and they're used as fuel for the fire. Paul's actions, his, his life, that produced this clear conscience, it gave evidence to the reality that what was happening inside of him and what he was actually believing, that was actually good. The motivations inside of him that were being produced were good. How can you tell if what is going on inside of you is good. How can you tell? Well, here's an easy way. <laughs> Grab someone that you trust. Not, not someone who's going to tell you what you want to hear, but something that you need to hear, and ask them what their impression is of what kind of things your life is producing. What's it producing? Is there, is there anything questionable? Is there anything that is, that is not honorable, that is worthy of praise? Then you might want to start asking yourself, why it is that what you think you believe isn't impacting the motivations of your heart the way that you think it should be impacted. Or the things that you believe, why they are causing the, these motivations of your heart that you are experiencing to well up inside of you. Paul moves on to accusation number three, verse 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. See, every single accusation here he's revealing is just plain lies. Every last one. This, this one about profaning the temple, I wasn't doing that. I wasn't profaning the temple. On the contrary, after having spent a lot of time in Gentile territory... And he must be assuming that everyone there knows this is what good Jews do. You spend time in Gentile territory where you don't just go march back in to the Temple Mount and go into the sacred temple areas without having gone through some cleansing rituals because guess what? You defiled yourself just by walking through these areas. And he says, I've done that. I, pure, I, I was purified in the temple. This guy is devout. Is he forsaking all of their customs? Does he want to just walk in there and desecrate the place? Why? Well, why would he have purified himself? It doesn't make sense. What's more, he didn't come to tear anything down. No, his whole reason for this trip to Jerusalem, it was so that he could deliver foreign aid to those in Jerusalem. I mean, who in their right mind 
could not see that these bloodthirsty goons who had gone to these great lengths to accuse Paul weren't completely full of it. They were just completely full of it. And that's when Paul gives the real clincher. Verse 18, the end of verse 18, he turns their attention, the attention of the governor to the Jews from Asia, the ones who were accusing him in the temple to begin with. He knew that they should be there. By Roman law, for an accusation to really stick, for them to consider some type of sentence here, some type of conviction here, well, the accusers had to show up in person. And Paul says, you know, they really ought to be here. He knew it. The religious leaders knew it. The governor especially knew it. This whole, whole ordeal is a rather big waste of time without these guys here. And then Paul concludes, he does something really strange here. He concludes by saying, you know, the only real reason that these men could be upset with me is because of something that I brought up in front of them, this whole thing about the resurrection. He brings up the resurrection here, and I go, why? Why, Paul, would you bring this up? You had already, you were already answered all your accusations. You're doing good. You, you, you just need to keep your mouth shut now. You got this thing locked. But Paul couldn't keep his mouth shut, could he? Couldn't. Because if there's one motivation that drove him more than anything else, it was that he might point people to the hope that they can have in Jesus. Here he has the floor. He doesn't know if he's going to get another opportunity to speak during this hearing. So he brings to center stage the hope of the gospel that he is all about. Do you see that? What motivations are there lurking inside of you, inside of me? And what impact do they have when we're given the opportunity to share with them that Jesus Christ is their one and only hope? We've talked about the prosecution. We've talked about the defense. It's time for us to talk about the judge. Felix had a decision in front of him. He had the opportunity to side with either the accusers who doing so really didn't make much sense in, in view of the evidence. Actually doing that, siding with the accusers could have been really, really bad for him because it would compromise his integrity as a governor. And if the emperor finds out about that, that's going to put his position in big time jeopardy. But at the same time, he really didn't want to do anything to have these Jewish leaders upset at him again because another riot would, well, that would probably put an end to my political career really fast. I know I'm on thin ice here. So, doing what he knew was right and just letting Paul go, charges drop, that wasn't really the answer either. So he decides to pick door number three, verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that, that's Luke letting us know that this governor was well acquainted with this so-called sect that Paul was supposed to be the ringleader of, and he knew about what they were doing. He knew a little bit about what they believed, and he must have known they weren't motivated by politics. Neither had they shown the slightest signs of wanting to overthrow the government. I know these people. No, Felix knew what was right. But the motivations of his heart would not allow him to make that choice. Have you ever heard someone say, I, I know what the right thing to do is, but my feelings, they won't let me do it. 
says this, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. There were different levels of custody. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he decides to hold off on making a decision here. Probably he's hoping, this. I just give it enough time. These guys are going to forget about it. Paul is out of the way. I've got him over here, out of sight, out of mind. The whole thing is just going to go away. The accusers would lose interest. I can just go on doing my governor thing. Yes, Felix, motivated to do whatever it took to maintain his political power. This is about politics. But you know there are other motivations behind this? Look at verse 24. It says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And you say, this is very interesting. What's happening here? Is this whole thing going to end with Felix and his wife coming to faith in Jesus? This is going to be really cool. Don't get too excited here. The governor and his wife, they appear to be curious about this guy named Paul and what he was preaching, maybe because of her Jewish roots. She was Jewish. Maybe she had Jewish friends, apparently. I'm sure she did. Jewish family. She had probably heard about this Jesus who said all kinds of curious things. And he had this huge following. There was this legendary tale about how he had come back from the dead? I mean, that would be intriguing, wouldn't you say? What's more, she would have heard people coming to Jesus are saying they're finding new life in Jesus. Well, that's pretty attractive. That sounds pretty good. Wouldn't you want to know a little bit more about that? Have you ever heard someone say they're, they, they, were, they were curious about this whole Jesus thing? Maybe someone who spent some time out there in the world, they've, they've seen that and everything's not really okay out there. Something seems really wrong. And maybe this whole Jesus thing, maybe it could have some answers here. How many celebrities out there? They seem to find Jesus. And then you listen to them and you think, well, yeah, you seem to have adopted the label and you're wearing the jewelry, but I'm not sure if they know the first thing about what this whole Jesus thing is about. You know, speaking of celebrities... That's not such a bad description for Felix and his wife here. If there were such a thing as magazine covers or social media posts or TMZ or YouTube channels dedicated to the bold, the beautiful, the rich and famous back then, well, this couple would have been center stage. Felix, of course, you already know. He's the powerful, rash, brutal, controversial ruler. On the other hand, there's Drusilla. Don't get confused. She is not one of the evil stepsisters in Cinderella. This is an almost 20-year-old knockout. She was a woman described as having ravishing beauty. And that was clear because when she was a teenager, she found herself married to a Syrian king. And when Felix first laid eyes on her, he had to have her. Yeah, she's going to be mine. He, devise, he devises a plan that involves a magician. And the goal was to seduce her away 
from her husband. Guess what? It worked. Can you see the paparazzi eating this up? (laughs) This was a relationship that was all about indulgence, about seduction. It's about power. This is a couple that many would look at and they would say, they are living the dream. These are icons. I wonder if this couple had some sort of following. Their comings and goings are being carefully watched. The way she does her hair, who she's wearing, the designer labels that everyone else could only dream of affording. And here they were, sitting down with Paul. Felix is on his third marriage. She's on her second We haven't mentioned yet a three-year-old son growing up with them among the rich and famous. If you were Paul, what would you say to them? What would you say? They're asking you about Jesus. They're they're kind of curious about what it means to trust in him. What are you going to share with that? I really don't have any doubt that Paul would have explained to Drusilla, your, your Jewish roots, do you realize where they lead? They lead to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the long-awaited Messiah who you even now are looking for. You, your family, all your friends, they're all looking for this guy. He already came, and it's through him. Guess what? It's actually only through him, the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb of God, that your sins can be forgiven. You know, when some people share the good news of Jesus, they think it, it, all you got to say is, Jesus is the answer, just, just, just Jesus. Or, or they'll say, you know what, God has this wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you about it. Or they'll say, trusting in Jesus, well, that's how you, you, you get your ticket to heaven. And none of that is wrong. But the reality is, for anyone to trust in Jesus to actually understand what he came to accomplish and why they need to place their trust in him, what's well, got to be made clear why Jesus actually came to save them and what he came to save them from. In verse 25, we read, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. What's that? The governor, this powerful, brutal governor, is alarmed? What are you talking about? Why is he alarmed? Well, he's alarmed because there he is standing with his sparkling superstar wife, whom he had stolen away from her rightful husband. And not only that, but he knew full well all the questionable, despicable things that he had done in his career to maintain his power. And now he's sitting there listening to Paul talk to him about God's perfect standard and how he's fallen so, so Short. He's being told about how self-control was this virtue that God prized and desired to develop within his people, knowing full well that his relationship between he and his wife was about anything other than self-control. He's listening to Paul tell him uh, that, that because of these things, because of all these things that he prized, and loved, God is going to bring judgment. And that's not what he wanted to hear. I can almost hear Paul saying, hey, you know what? You haven't 
decided on my case yet. You haven't decided on my case, but you know, you, you really need to know you're going to stand before a judge, a bigger judge. He's going to decide whether or not you're guilty. He's not just going to keep putting it off like you keep putting it off for me. And based on everything I know, there's a big, big pile of incriminating evidence against you, my friend. It says he's alarmed. You better believe he was alarmed. What Felix and Drusilla had before them was an opportunity, though. Huge opportunity. As they sat there listening to Paul share what it means to trust in Jesus, they have this clear path laid out for them that leads. Where does it lead? It leads to forgiveness. It leads to being made right with their creator. It leads to an eternal future that is far, far better than the good life that they thought that they were enjoying right then and there. That's one road. Down the other road, though, well, they have their limelight. Ah, they loved it. Their limelight, star-studded, hilltop mansion, pleasure-filled fantasy life. Ah. Sure, there'd been some bumps in the road. Okay, yeah, that, who doesn't have that? Well, maybe there were actually some, some things that we, we kind of regret. Yeah, okay, but we made it, right? We made it. I mean, look at us compared to all those other plebeians out there. How many people do you know that are in the same boat? Either they think that they're, they've made it or they're trying desperately to make it. They're on the road to success. They built up some type of kingdom for themselves, but the, the motives that have been steering their hearts are things like power and lust, sensual pleasure, even greed. All things that give evidence to the fact that their hearts are dark and headed for judgment. Greed was actually part of the picture for Felix as well. We discover, as we read on, we find that over the next two years, he meets with Paul again and again and again. But it's not for learning about Jesus or hearing more about this Jesus. It's so that he might give Paul an opportunity. Hey, you want to you give me some, uh, some, something here? Give, give, me a little, give me a little something and I might think about letting you go. Some, some commentators, they speculate, had Paul run into some money here? Did, did the family leave, pass away and leave him some property? Did Felix know something about this guy? He was trying to get money from him. Which road were Felix and his wife going to take? Well, we, we actually don't know. We don't know for certain. But from the looks of things, it would seem that they both let this opportunity to trust in Jesus, to surrender to him, just pass them by. At the end of verse 20, 25, he says, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. I don't think that's very different from the way a lot of people think these days. Yeah, yeah uh, okay. Let, let's just hold that thought. Let's put a pin in it. I'll think about trusting in Jesus at some point, but not, not right now. For Felix, it seems like right now never came. He lets Paul sit there in custody two years, two years. And then Felix, he gets yanked from his position. The thing that he feared actually happens. But for the sake of keeping up good relations with the Jews, he leaves him there in prison. Doesn't sound very promising. 
And we don't know whether or not his wife, Drusilla, came to faith in Jesus either. But we do know. A few years later, she found herself in Italy. In a place called Pompeii, she fell victim to the catastrophic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79. This is real life stuff. There's something to that Arabian proverb, right? Four things uh, come not back. The spoken word, the spent arrow, time passed, the neglected opportunity. And the question before us is, what will you do with the opportunity that is laid before you? If you have not yet turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus... Well, you really need to seize that opportunity. Hebrews 10.26 warns, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will continue, that will consume the adversaries, it says. Don't let that be the end of your story. If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, let's talk today. And if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with God, you have been restored in your relationship with God, you've been washed clean, what are you doing with the opportunities God is giving you to share this life-altering future-defining, death-defying news. What are you doing with it? It can be so easy to follow those whispers of our hearts to convince us that avoiding inconvenience or obstacles or awkward conversations, that that should be our number one priority. That's my motivation. I want to do that at all costs. Let's pray to God that he places within us a deeper, more powerful motivation. Let's pray that like Paul, before comfort and before ease, before standing up for our rights and even standing for, for our freedoms would be a heart that desires above all else that people yes, even those that think that they have it all together, that live in the dream, people would turn from their sin and trust in the saving faith of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does pierce directly to our souls and it calls us, it beckons us to turn our lives to you, to turn from our sin, to trust in Jesus who took our sin upon himself, who paid for it with his own life upon the cross and now is risen from the dead and offers us forgiveness, restoration, new life, hope for eternity. Lord, this is incredible. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I do pray, Lord, if anyone is listening online or they're in this room and they've not yet placed their trust in Jesus, that this would be the moment, this would be the day where they say, you know what, I don't know if I have time. 
I need to seize this opportunity now. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Here's my life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for taking the punishment of my sin. I trust in him. Forgive me, wash me clean. You are my Lord. You are my God. I want to follow you for the rest of my days. And for those of us, Lord, who have trusted in you, Lord, place motivations in our hearts like that of Paul that burn within us, compelling us to share this incredible hope that we have. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.